Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the story of Chicago indoor drag racing during the early 1960s. This is an amazing tale of a series of drag races held inside the Chicago International Amphitheater in 1962, 63, and 64, after 30 years of indoor racing preceding it. An enterprising promoter, a country obsessed with muscle cars, and action in the wintertime. This is Dorkomotive. Total Venue Concepts is the most comprehensive racing facility service, equipment, and consulting firm in the nation. Founded and led by industry veteran and expert Kurt Johnson, the company is uniquely positioned to provide surface maintenance and preparation, equipment rentals, fabrication and sales, event and facility management consulting, racing service renovations and construction oversight, graphics and technical writing expertise, as well as trade show and event support. With a proven record of solving problems and improving track operations, racing surface preparation and event execution, TVC should be your first call for virtually any facility need. Contact Total Venue Concepts by visiting TotalVenueConcepts.com or calling 419-677-3023. That's TotalVenueConcepts.com or 419-677-3023. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. Use Jerko for 10% off. Undoubtedly, you've seen the photos, incredible as they are, depicting full-on drag cars running under the lights inside a massive building in the 1960s. Most of the time, these photos are posted with a little blurb about the Chicago International Amphitheater and the fact that the racing took place in 1962. They'll mention speeds of 70 to 80 miles an hour on a short drag strip inside a building which measured 440 feet in length, had racers driving through roll-up doors in the structure, and staging outside in the wilds of a Chicago winter. None of this is wrong, but the quick info that most people spit out does nothing to tell the full story of a series of drag races that spanned a few winters and were nearly 30 years in the making at that very location. Indoor drag racing during the early years of the 1960s was as wild and crazy as you think it was, but believe it or not, it wasn't the craziest or the fastest form of racing ever held inside the Chicago International Amphitheater. So, let's go back to the beginning. The Chicago International Amphitheater was opened in 1934 in an area known as Canaryville on the south side of Chicago. The place was opened adjacent to the legendary Chicago Stockyards and the original function of the $1.5 million building was to play host to the International Livestock Exhibition. As such, the structure was enormous. There was a main arena section which held about 9,000 people, but then there were massive convention hall-style areas attached to it. Over time, the convention center areas would grow and the facility would swell to more than 100 total acres under one roof. The convention center areas were huge open rooms with support columns to hold the roof up and overhead doors to section them off into different size halls depending on the events that were being held. Long before anybody thought about racing cars in a straight line in those parts of the facility, it was the arena that took center stage for gearheads. 
Chicago held its first indoor automobile race in November of 1934 at the Hyde Park Armory Building. This was another arena-type setting and the perfect place to set up a small one-tenth mile circle track for midget racing. An organization known as the Midwest Indoor Auto Racing Association put on the event and it was a smash hit. The massive success of these early events, promoted by the Midwest Auto Racing Association, caused them to reach out to other cities and attempt to organize a national indoor midget winter racing circuit. Wasting no time at all, the Chicago International Amphitheater held its first midget race inside the far larger main hall they had in January of 1935. Speaking of that National Midget Winter Racing Tour, let's quote the Chicago Tribune of February 13, 1935. Headline, Intercity Card of Auto Indoor Races Planned. Chicago, St. Louis, and New York indoor auto racing promoters are all working together to set up an intercity schedule which will begin soon. Midwest Indoor Auto Racing Association officials, who conduct the races at the 124th Artillery Armory on Sunday nights, announced that Tony Willman, indoor champion, will head the Chicago team of two. Either Marshall Lewis or Ted Tedderson will be the other driver. According to present plans, the Chicago team will appear in New York at the Bronx Coliseum next Wednesday night. Two New York drivers, probably Wild Bill Holmes and John Bozo Ballas, will appear at the 124th Armory on February 24th. St. Louis will send its two stars to Chicago the next Sunday, and a Tri-City meet is scheduled for Chicago later. While it doesn't seem that the idea came off to the level that the organizers wanted, there was midget racing happening throughout the winter in the cold climate cities of the nation, and consistently every winter up until World War II. A former NFL player named Art Foles became the leading indoor racing promoter in Chicago at this time, putting on races not only indoors, but he began famously putting on races inside the legendary Soldier Field. From the 1930s through the early 1950s, Foles was the kingpin of the Chicago temporary facility racing scene. During the period of the late 40s and into those early 50s, the secretary of the company was a man named Bill Shade. And through means which I could not entirely discern, he would end up taking control of the company. And once Shade got control of the company, he would elevate the creative racing promotion game in Chicago to levels that Foles never envisioned. When Shade began, he continued promoting, alongside Andy Granatelli, of course, the Soldier Field stock car races, races at Ileana Speedway, a dirt track, and a multitude of competitions at the Chicago International Amphitheater. It bears stating the fact, again, that Chicago-area race fans were not just hip to the idea of wintertime indoor motorsports, they were 100% trained and raised on it by the time the mere thought of drag racing entered Bill Shade's head. But we have to go through a few more things before we even get that far. Chicagoland gearheads were constantly attending events at the amphitheater in the winter. Famous drivers from all over the nation, the biggest names, the guys that competed at the Indy 500 and other huge races would flock to Chicago with Bill Shade's appearance money stuffed in their pockets. They would race midgets at the amphitheater and then they would race at other venues around Chicago as well. But the amphitheater, the home to the sprawling Chicago auto show also during this time period and ensuing decades, was the epicenter. Oftentimes, events like the midget races and the Chicago auto show would be timed together, but the reality is they were racing at this place nearly every weekend during the winter. Now we fast forward to 1958 in what is unequivocally the most incredible indoor racing event ever held in Chicago, and it was both way faster and way more dangerous than the drag races to come about a half decade later. The Chicago Daily World, January 5th, 1958. Quote, Race Indoors. Dateline Chicago United Press. Chicago's International Amphitheater will host the first ever indoor Grand Prix for sports cars on March 9th. 
top sports car drivers from all over the nation and abroad will compete in the event on a one-mile course. On March 9, 1958, Chicago Auto Racing Inc. put on the world's first, and as best as I can tell, only indoor Grand Prix for sports cars. This was not a little oval track. This was not a little drag strip. This was a 7 8 mile road course that was constructed inside the building, had 12,000 hay bales lining it, a slick concrete floor underpinning it, and guardrails along what was an incredible 1,600-foot main straightaway. The event drew some of the better-known sports car racers in the country, including the eventual winner, a guy named Loyal Katsky of Nebraska, who was driving a 4.4-liter Ferrari Monza. That particular car had been raced previously around Europe by the legendary Maston Gregory against some of the most famous cars, people, and courses of the era. Incredibly, reports from this event are scant. In fact, the lead-up story is the most interesting part of the whole thing and its description of the course. The one newspaper report that I could find about the event said that Katsky hit speeds of 120 miles an hour along the straightaway inside the building and averaged more than 73 miles per hour per lap. The single most frustrating thing I have encountered in all of this research I've completed here is that not a single photo of the actual race exists. Not one. Nothing. Nada. It's killing me. And if anybody watching this has anything to share, please, I beg of you to hit me up and let me know. Beyond the sports car race, Shade had so much more lined up as well. Listen to this story from the Chicago Tribune, which talks about the entire lineup of events and the specifics of the course. Chicago Tribune, March 8, 1958. Headline, Amphitheater Becomes Race Arena Today by Robert Cromie. As varied a racing program as Chicago has ever seen will be offered today and tomorrow in the amphitheater at the stockyards where motorcycles, midgets, quarter midgets, and the fleet of spectacular sports cars will compete. For auto racing fans who prefer their pleasures a little on the quieter side, the competitive sports car club sponsoring the affair offers an exhibition of hot rod and custom cars covering 90,000 square feet of the second floor with more than 100 entries. Subtitle, Woman to Compete. Perhaps the most unusual things about the two-day show are the length of the track over which the sports cars will run, roughly seven-eighths of a mile, with critical portions protected by guardrail, the quarter midget races tomorrow in which a dozen youngsters from 6 to 12 years old will drive replicas of the big midgets powered by three or three-and-a-half horsepower engines, which will produce speeds up to 20 miles per hour, and the presence in the motorcycle race of a woman rider who learned to compete in open races in her native England. She is Miss Teresa Wallach who now runs a motorbike shop on the south side of Chicago. She has raced in many places, including Africa, France, and Germany. Among them, her countrymen and employee, Tony Mack, who comes from the Isle of Man. The doors open at 10 a.m. today, and the sports cars driven by both professional amateurs will try out the track, covered with a special adhesive substance with a resin base, until about 3.30 p.m. They will also make qualifying runs over the route, with the longest straightaway of about 1,600 feet. Subtitle, Sports Car Experts. The midget track, an eighth of a mile in the arena proper, will be set up during the late afternoon and qualifying for the midgets will start at 7 p.m. The midget races will start at 8.30 p.m. and consist of four 15-lap heats, a 25-lap semifinal, and a 50-lap final event. The small fry drivers will be seen between 12 and 1 p.m. tomorrow. They'll get a half-hour's practice on the midget track and then run a 30-lap, three-quarter mile exhibition. Sports car drivers will include Loyal Katsky, 51-year-old auto dealer from Omaha, who's run at Elkhart Lake in Nassau, Jake Jacobs of Teaneck, New Jersey, one of the better-known professionals from the East Coast, Herb Swan of Euclid, Ohio, 
a Jaguar owner who competed in the Sebring Grand Prix in Florida and will drive a modified Kieft Bristol. Bob Loudon from Aurora, Illinois, a 24-year-old field engineer for American Motors and an Austin Healey. And Bob Stello, 30, from Aurora and a 2-liter Ferrari. All but Jacobs will be making their first professional appearances. The follow-up? One measly paragraph of results from the Chicago Tribune the day after the race. I've scoured magazines, books, the internet, made phone calls, and the only record I can find is this little blurb of a story. But it did happen in Katsky 1. Amazing, right? Chicago Tribune, March 10th, 1958. Loyal Katsky of Omaha, Nebraska, driving a Ferrari Monza, won the indoor Grand Prix at the amphitheater in the stockyards, leading from an average from start to finish and averaging 73.08 miles per hour. Reportedly, he struck speeds of 120 miles an hour on the straight. End quote. 1959, 1960, and 1961 were filled with more of the same. The winters had midgets and micros and go-kart races, although the sports cars never came back. The good weather months were filled with successful stock car and jalopy hot rod races at Soldier Field, the track which had gone from cinders to dirt and was now fully paved. It's 1962 where our indoor drag racing odyssey truly starts. Newspaper announcements for the first ever event began to hit in December of 1962 and they came with some information on how the events would be run, the course dimensions, and who would be running them. The Chicago Dispatch, December 27, 1962. Headline Drag race meet brought indoors for first time. The first indoor drag racing meet ever attempted in the United States will be held Sunday at the International Amphitheater in Chicago. Bob Bartell of Moline, manager of Quad City Drag Strip, will be in charge of Sunday's competition in Chicago. Bartell says that the full strip length inside the amphitheater measures about 1,100 feet. Cars will accelerate through a 400-foot section, which will be fully timed, and will have a braking area of about 700 feet. Because of space limitations, dragsters will not be permitted to compete. Stock cars, gas coupes, and sports cars will make up the bulk of the field. Time trials will start at 7 a.m. Sunday, with elimination scheduled to begin at 1 p.m. End quote. Many people are wowed by the fact that the course had guardrails, and they're shown in the photos. And let me warn you, I've not curated the photos to match up with the specific years of action, but understand that the place, well, it kind of looks the same all three years that the races happen. But the reality on the guardrails is kind of interesting because they would have been the same ones used at the 1958 sports car race along the straightaway, which was held in the same location as where the drag strip was. The drag strip, nip and tuck as it was, was in that exact same place. The major difference is the drag strip started down the straightaway, where the sports car race straightaway started further back in the building, hence the reason the drag strip itself was shorter. One more thing to clear up here. A lot of people will say that USAC either sanctioned or sponsored the drag races, and there is no mention of that ever being the case on either way. USAC certainly sanctioned the midget races that happened because it was part of their touring series. But on the drag strip front, these were effectively unsanctioned. At this time in history, you primarily had the NHRA and the AHRA's sanctioning bodies. But you also had Bill Shade, who was a promoter that was able to get motorsports insurance for events. It is of my opinion that Shade achieved his own insurance policy for these races and therefore did not need a sanctioning body to oversee them for insurance reasons. The first event was a huge hit. Hundreds of cars and thousands of people showed up to watch. Shade wasted no time in booking more races. Three additional events were held in early 1963, one on January 20th, which was sparsely attended by racers and fans because of horrible weather, and another on January 27th, which was as big or bigger than the first one. And the final race of the season was held on Sunday, March 31st, 1963. 
The coverage of the race events during the first season certainly helped Bill Shade's cause. We go to the Chicago News, January 16, 1963. The Daredevil and Drag Department. By popular demand, indoor drag racing will return to the International Amphitheater the next two Sundays, January 20th and 27th. Bill Shade, veteran promoter and president of Chicago Auto Racing, reported that the initial show last December 30th drew 5,000 fans to watch 160 cars perform. In all, Shade's statistics stipulate that 2,248 runs were made, 26 cars reached speeds of more than 70 miles an hour, and the fastest time of the day was 79.313 miles per hour, made by Jack Sharkey of Madison, Illinois, in a 1963 Plymouth. More cars and even higher speeds are predicted for the next two shows, since the drivers are now accustomed to the track and the procedure of this type of indoor meet. Gates will open to the public at the world's only indoor drag strip at 9 a.m. both Sundays. The Chicago News, January 23, 1963. Things were kind of ruminating the other day when the phone rang. Turns out it was our good buddy, Brother Bill Shade, president of Chicago Auto Racing. He just wanted to fill us in that his second indoor drag racing event at the International Amphitheater last Sunday, January 20th, was such a tremendous hit, he had to do it all over again. And so more cars and higher speeds will be looked for this Sunday, January 27th. Plans are already underway to enlarge the spectator area and increase concession facilities will be available to the more devoted fans who come early and stay all day. The gates will open at 9 a.m. Pack your lunch and settle back. It's a thrill-a-minute program. The Chicago Suburbanite Economist, March 27, 1963. Headline, Top Car Draggers Prep for Sizzling Meets End. Sunday, March 31st, the final meet of the first indoor drag racing season will be held at the International Amphitheater at 42nd and Halstead. Veteran promoter Bill Shade, president of Chicago Auto Racing, has reported that the tremendous support of U.S. Northsiders has helped make this first season a tremendous success. Cars from all over the states in the Midwest have participated in spite of the worst winter weather in over 50 years, with each meet has bringing out increasing numbers of dragon wagons. The last meet saw 282 cars in competition before more than 6,200 spectators. On a final recheck of timing slips, more than a dozen runs were tabbed at speeds above the strip record. A new record of 86.538 miles an hour was set by Arnie Beswick of Morrison, Illinois, in a 1963 Pontiac Tempest. Sunday's meet should see some fantastic speeds, and no real drag racing fan can afford to miss the program. Gates open at 9 a.m. and competition continues all day long. As you can tell by the end of the 1963 season, these races were massive and they were drawing all the big names from the Midwest. You heard Arnie Bezuk's name in those stories. The speeds were increasing, and yes, Coke syrup was being used to aid traction on the starting line, but the racers kind of said it had limited effect. The 1964 indoor drag racing season was supposed to kick off on Sunday, December 29th, but there was a problem. Perhaps for the first time in the history of the sport of drag racing, it was bumped for a bigger show, the NFL. The Chicago Bears had won the NFL Western Division title, and as such, the amphitheater will be hosting a closed telecast of the game in its arena, and the drag racers, along with the fans, were moved back to January 5th of 1964 to start their year. Here are some stories helping to hype the 1964 season. First, the Chicago News of December 18th, 1963. Nothing slow about the second season of indoor drag races, which will get underway at the International Amphitheater here under the auspices of Chicago Auto Racing. Top Flight President and Promoter Bill Shade told us over the phone yesterday that the competition in the Big Big Car Apple begins Sunday, December 29th. Last winter proved to be such a success, Bill tells us, and was so well received by the contestants and spectators alike that Chicago Auto Racing has scheduled five indoor drag meets for this 1964 winter season. The Suburbanite Economist, December 26, 1963. Those big indoor drag races department. 
For that final thrill of the early New Year's time after the partying is over, how about the world's only indoor drag races, which start in the International Amphitheater on Chicago's south side January 5th? Bossman Bill Shade, president of the Chicago Auto Racing Association, caught us on the phone Monday to say that since those big bad Chicago Bears won the Western Division title in the National Football League, and since the title game is being played December 29th, the opening meet of the big indoor drag racing season will be postponed. December 29th will be the closed telecast at the amphitheater of the Chicago Bears New York Giants Professional Championship football game. The Chicago News, January 1st, 1964. Headline, car drag races this Sunday at amphitheater. Next Sunday, January 5th, the 1964 indoor drag racing season will get underway after having been postponed a week due to the closed circuit broadcast of the Bears Giants Championship football game on December 29th. The International Amphitheater was one of the spots selected for the telecast, and it is the only place in the entire Chicago area large enough to stage the indoor drag races and have room to pit the hundreds of cars that compete in the wheel-spinning derbies. The final meet of the 1963 season drew over 200 contestants with speeds over 90 miles an hour attained by several cars. Greater advance interest has been evidenced this season, and with a full summer to tune their cars, the list of entries will probably top 300, and some hair-raising speed should be attained by quite a few of the boys. The doors of the International Amphitheater will open at 10 a.m., and you can stay all day until the final run about 6 p.m. for a full day of drag racing. The Suburbanite Economist, February 5, 1964. Bye-bye Indoor Drag Racing Department. Next Sunday, February 9th, Chicago Auto Racing under impresario Bill Shade will present the final indoor drag beat of the 1964 season at the International Amphitheater. Final rules will create an atmosphere of intense excitement as the elimination runs are featured in each class. New records are expected as the gas gunners make their final indoor appearance. Gates at the Sporting Palace will open at 10 a.m., and the racing will continue until after 6 p.m. So as you can tell, the four meets held in 1964 on January 5th, January 12th, February 2nd, and February 9th were smash hits. Also, at this point, you should realize that when you read a story or somebody saying that they only did this once or twice, they're dead wrong. Attendance was strong on both ends all year long in 1964, and the racers had come to know and expect an unbroken season of action in the Chicagoland area. Again, the quality of racer continued to grow at these events. Pretty much anybody with any sort of dealer or manufacturer-backed machine from the Midwest was attending and racing because their cars were promotional tools. Thousands of people who attended these races were getting an up-close and personal experience with the drivers and the cars. These races not only had the big-time excitement of a match race at a local drag strip, they had the compressed environment of being inside a closed building with deafening noise and a very close proximity to the racetrack for the spectators. Some people ask how they ventilated the building, and best I can tell, they kind of just cracked a window. There's no real talk about how they ventilated all the exhaust fumes out other than simply circulating air from opening the door to let more cars in as the other cars were trailing out the back of the building. It was a value-added proposition for the racers and their supporters at these events. Typically, when a sponsored racer finished his season at the end of the summer, the car would go into a shop and be seen by nobody until the beginning of the next season, or it would be updated never to be seen again. For everyone involved, these events were a golden opportunity to tune their cars up inside and get them into tip-top shape to be ready for the outdoor season, which would begin every spring at the many drag strips that had begun to dot the landscape in the area. But there were issues looming, and one of them had nothing to do with drag racing or the Chicago International Amphitheater. Well, we have a moment, we need to mention one specific car that was at these events, which is still amazingly an active drag race car today. In 1957, a kid named Dick Messino had a friend who was gifted a 1957 Chevy upon his high school graduation. 
The guys took this car drag racing, and about a year later, Dick Messino bought it off his buddy and took the white 57 Chevy and painted it red. The car was street raced and gradually updated over time, and the same car you can see in these black and white photos, Messino, who is now in his 80s, still owns today. The machine was named Shake, Rattle, and Run. It moved into the gas classes and in the 1980s kept being upgraded with bigger and better motors as a match racing star in the Midwest. It got an early 632 and was turned into a ProMod car during the late 1980s and is now a six-second capable, fully tube chassis multi-nitrous stage monster that can be found terrorizing drag strips right up to the very moment you are watching this video. Shake, Rattle, and Run is such an institution as a race car, and Dick Messino is such an epic life story as a man, they both may be worthy of a video of their own down the road. But all that aside, we have to go back to our story and place ourselves back in early 1964. The drag racing season has just ended at the amphitheater, so now it's time for Bill Shade to go back to promoting races at Soldier Field. The problem was Bill Shade's stock car racing promotions at Soldier Field had begun to wane and wane quickly. There were now more accessible dirt and short asphalt tracks for racers. Promoters who had less overhead than running an entire stadium were able to offer larger purses, and the racers had begun to prefer the action on tracks with banking and higher speeds, and these were speeds that were simply not achievable on the flat racing surface inside the massive Soldier Field. After a financially ruinous start to the 1964 season at the stadium, Shade and his partner Carl Bledsoe canceled the remainder of the season and were done with it. The first events had brought in very few cars, and the spectator count was truly dismal. But there was a twist that came with the cancellation announcement. Shade approached the management at the stadium with a new proposal. He wanted to slightly modify the circle track in order to turn it into a drag strip. He proposed an eighth-mile track that would need length added out the back of the venue for a shutdown area. This idea was never approved or moved upon by those in control of the stadium, but it's pretty neat in an often unknown part of the story that he pitched and saw the potential market for a drag strip instead of the circle track at this time. Illustrated Speedway News, May 19th. 1964. Midwest Whispers by Wayne Adams, Dateline, Chicago, Illinois. The big local news of the past week was the rather sudden announcement from Chicago Auto Racing, Inc. that all stock car racing in the lakefront area has been canceled, at least for the balance of 1964. This decision came from Bill Shade, the president of the Chicago Area Auto Racing Association, after the first two programs of the new season failed to produce competitor or spectator interest. The season opener on Sunday afternoon, May 3rd, drew a fine field of late models, most of whom slipped in from other ovals where the night racing had already gotten underway. The opening day crowd was very disappointing. You could put a couple thousand fans in that vast stadium with seats around 100,000 and not even fill the front row. Switching nights on May 9th and with O'Hare Stadium and Raceway Park in direct competition, the field suffered a severe car shortage and even less people than the opener drew. Bill Shade, who has endeavored to retain Major League Racing in Chicago despite financial setbacks during the past few seasons, at the same time, Shade asked for permission from the Park District to operate a short drag strip on the field, which would be just about the same length as the strip he operated indoors at the International Amphitheater during the winter, around 800 feet. Apparently, the plan is to use the home stretch for timing pleasure cars, which would then use the back stretch as the road to return towards the starting line. Soldier field failures aside, Shade had the amphitheater and he'd use it wisely. He promoted the closed-circuit live broadcast of the Indy 500 in 1964 
and he created a robust schedule of drag racing for the winter of 1965. Before we go into that, it bears mentioning that these events had earned such cachet that dealers would use them as sales points when promoting product, or in this case, attempting to sell a Ford Thunderbolt that had raced there, apparently undefeated in class efforts over the 1964 season. To me, this alone shows just how big a deal these races had turned into. On November 11, 1964, a five-race schedule was announced for the upcoming season in the Illustrated Speedway News. The races would be run on successive weeks in January, the 3rd, the 10th, the 17th, the 24th, a week off, and then the finals on February 7th. Illustrated Speedway News November 10, 1964. Five winter indoor drag racing dates have been set by Bill Shade of Chicago Auto Racing, Inc. for the International Amphitheater, the 3rd, 10th, 17th, and 24th of January and February 7th. End quote. And then, disaster. As the story often gets told on the internet, the fire department are the ones that put an end to the drag racing inside the Chicago International Amphitheater. But no real context is given for it, so I went looking. And what I found kind of made sense as to why the fire department got itchy about the idea of drag racing indoors. Consider this. The city of Chicago had confronted a slew of major fires in 1963, which made officials nervous about running automobile races inside. Because of this, the fire service had a vastly increased presence at the 1963 races, both the drag racing and midget events, as well as the car shows that had gassed-up machines on display inside buildings. As bad as this was, timing was very, very much against Bill Shade all of a sudden coming in to what would have been his 1965 season. In November of 1964, at virtually the same day his 1965 season announcement was made, the City of Chicago Fire Department was confronted with 72 hours of hell. Three massive fires which stretched its beleaguered fire service to its absolute breaking point had everybody on edge. These were not house fires, but massive multiple-story structure fires that required incredible manpower and apparatus to contain and control. The fact that they battled through these 72 hours showed the grit and unwavering strength of the department, but raised fire prevention awareness to untold levels. On December 27, 1964, in the same Illustrated Speedway newspaper that he had announced his schedule in, Shade canceled the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel because of the ranking officials of the Chicago Fire Department forbidding any more events of this type and scope to be put on. Undoubtedly, they were looking at the large by huge amphitheater as a potential next inferno they need to extinguish in the event of a disaster. Not to mention the more than gargantuan nature of the building, but also the number of people attending these events, and additionally, it would have been a structure filled with rolling fuel bombs to boot. None of this sat well with the department. At the time of this announcement, it seems that nothing would ever race again inside the amphitheater, let alone streetcars, stockers, and super stock cars. Illustrated Speedway News, December 29, 1964, page 7. Midwest Whispers by Wayne Adams. Following several weeks of discussions with ranking members of the Chicago Fire Department, Chicago Auto Racing Inc. has been forced to cancel their indoor drag racing series. A series of five consecutive meets have been scheduled to start at the International Amphitheater on January 3rd. Bill Shade, Chicago Auto Racing President, made the announcement this week after talks with the fire commissioner. Fire officials deemed the idea of having nearly 300 gas-burning stalkers inside a building is unsafe. Mr. Shade and his racing director, Carl Bledsoe, will continue to probe the possibility of future dates, but the opener has definitely been called off. Carr experienced problems with firefighters last year during the drag series and even operated their rod and custom and USAC midget programs under strict supervision. This ruling could very well affect the future of indoor events here in the amphitheater in every shape and form, and no other building in the Chicago area is suitable for racing, end quote. Interestingly, days later, on January 6, 1965, the following story ran in the Chicago Suburbanite Economist, quote, 
The next indoor race, sponsored by Chicago Auto Racing, according to President Bill Shade, the organization's president, will be in the International Amphitheater on Saturday, March 13th. Highlight of the car, gas and session, will be an appearance by the professional drivers of the United States Auto Club, who will vie in a national championship midget race. The show will be held in conjunction with the annual Rod and Custom Exhibition, holding the motor spotlight for a solid three days, March 12th, 13th, and 14th, end quote. So what gives? How did they have that event after the drag race was canceled? The simple answer? They didn't. The proof comes from this story, which mentions the car show in a blur, but not a whisker about a racing program. Shade likely talked the fire department into the static show with plenty of firemen on detail watching guard, but we're betting they did not budge on race cars. That car show would be the last we'd hear of Bill Shade or Chicago Racing Inc. in the papers of the Windy City. Dayton Daily News, March 18, 1965. Headline, Seat Kitty Wins. Quote, The Seat Kitty Motor Scooter product of Projects Unlimited of 1926 East Steinberheller Ave was selected as a first prize award winner as best of show at the recent annual Rod and Custom Show in Chicago. It was sponsored by Chicago Auto Racing Inc. and included customized cars, boats, and motorcycles. End quote. Racing continued on a limited basis at Soldier Field through 1968 with Bill Ernest promoting a limited schedule until the end of the year. The last gasp of racing at the facility were drag races slated to be held during the American Legion Independence Celebration there in the early 1970s. As luck would have it, poor weather and drizzle apparently put an end to that activity before the fun ever began. This was, though, by no means the end of indoor racing, as Mickey Thompson apparently promoted some arena drag racing events in the early 70s, would go on to create arena racing in the 1980s, and that continues to be popular today. Of course, we all know about motocross as well. Now, I have had no luck finding any physical record or evidence of the Mickey Thompson events, but I have met more than a few people who have sworn to have seen them in person, and there was another indoor drag race that was a financial wreck of epic proportions that bears talking about. The event was held inside Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh in 1971. Using steel plates welded together atop the AstroTurf sports playing surface, a drag strip was made. The three-night event featured wheel standers, a car racing a horse, Pro stocks, super stock, and stock eliminator action, as well as a significant purse each night. The event was heavily promoted, and the short strip was laid out with a starting line around the area of home plate on a baseball field and a finish line in shallow outfield territory just past second base. The outfield area served as the shutdown going toward the exit of the stadium. Timing equipment from Pittsburgh International Dragway was used, and it seemed a can't-miss idea. Instead of trying to drag the people out of the city to Pittsburgh International Dragway, they could take Pittsburgh International Dragway and plant it right inside the city. I mentioned the use of steel plates as a racing surface. 12,000 steel plates. They were welded together, and as the cars passed over, they often broke the welds apart, so the welds were repaired. And when they were repaired, they were melting the playing surface of the Pittsburgh Pirates underneath them. There were supposed to be nightly fireworks. Those were canceled. No one showed up and the thing was a colossal financial bloodletting for everybody involved, never to be repeated again. The legacy of the Southside Winter Nationals drag races in Chicago will long live in the annals of the sport. The next time you see a couple of random black and white photos from the race and people talk about it happening once or maybe twice, set them straight. This was an event 30 years in the making. It was a drag race built on the backs of go-karts, midgets, and even some of the world's most valuable sports cars. And as I like to say, now you know. Thanks for watching.
Like and subscribe for more historic racing and automotive content. Total Venue Concepts is the most comprehensive racing facility service, equipment, and consulting firm in the nation. Founded and led by industry veteran and expert Kurt Johnson, the company is uniquely positioned to provide surface maintenance and preparation, equipment rentals, fabrication and sales, event and facility management consulting, racing service renovations and construction oversight, graphics and technical writing expertise, as well as trade show and event support. With a proven record of solving problems and improving track operations, racing surface preparation and event execution, TVC should be your first call for virtually any facility need. Contact Total Venue Concepts by visiting TotalVenueConcepts.com or calling 419-677-3023. That's TotalVenueConcepts.com or 419-677-3023. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off.